Donald Trump is not the only nutcase on the right to be on the rise in the world. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. Today I'm joined in Washington by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of Work fellow at New America Foundation and a professor at Georgetown University. Also here with us is Ed Luce, the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist based in Washington, D.C., and calling into the studio from Oslo, Norway, where she is undoubtedly there to pick up her Nobel Peace Prize, is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and no doubt from some whaling vessel off the coast of Norway, we had the following conversation. In the last discussion that we had here at the ER, we talked about the threat posed by Donald Trump. Rosa defended him as not the worst presidential candidate in U.S. history and then compared him to Hitler. (laughs) Corey was lost in the 19th century and said something interesting happened in 1870, but none of us can remember what that was. Ed Luce, you are a, a beacon of light in all of this, so I want to start with you. Donald Trump is not the only nutcase on the right to be on the rise in the world. In Austria, there was an election in which a right-winger, did he win finally in the end? No, he didn't, but it was very, very close. Um, But he got very up to the edge. And, you know, given Austria's history with the right wing, that was unsettling. In the UK, you have UKIP, which has a lot of power, the Brexit movement, which has a lot of power and related to this. In France, there's always a Le Pen someplace, and you have the National Front, you have the Northern Alliance in Italy, you have Viktor Orban in Hungary. And in Latin America, you have the left on the ropes. Uh, Dilma Rousseff out at least for six months, her replacement saying we're not going to do any of these lefty policies anymore, uh, renouncing the ties to the Bolivarian regimes on their border. Uh, You have a regime in in Argentina that's essentially a corporatist regime rejecting the Peronist policies of the past for good reason because they were horrible, Uh, but nonetheless a shift right there and so on. And so the question is, is the big political story of 2016 not the one that we narrow-minded Americans think it is, which is us, 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 narcissism uh, writ large, or is, is, is it, in fact, the rise of the right worldwide or in many influential parts of the world? And is that something that we should be concerned with? Uh, yes, uh, I mean I think both both are true, and I don't think that Trump, you know, is is any except he's perhaps the best known global example of the challenge to democracy. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily confine it to the rise of the right. You mentioned my own country, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, is obviously the rise of a certain kind of left. Bernie Sanders here in America, also. What I would talk about is the collapsing middle, the collapsing centre, the deeply sort of toxic regard in which elites, intellectuals, experts, uh, government technocracies are held increasingly across the democratic world. And I think that's a, I think we are in 
a crisis of democracy. Um, Trump is the local expression, but I think it's a pretty universal crisis um, of democracy. And I don't know how this is going to play out. There is a broader sort of economic underpinning to this, um, namely that the middle um, in the economy is, is, is suffering stagnant or declining incomes, grossly rising economic insecurity and therefore nervousness, uh, anxiety about their status and their children's future. That's in common across the developed world. And I don't think that phenomenon is going to go away soon. You know, I think the impact of globalization, of technology, accelerating technology, is going to sustain that squeeze. And that therefore the collapse of the political middle is also going to be a sustained challenge that, that we're going to have to get used to. Corey, you are doing the incredibly un-American thing of traveling outside of our borders. <laughs> why? Uh, why? I want to know why. What did we do wrong, Corey? Why do you hate America? <laughs> <laughs> It goes without saying um, that I love our country. And in fact, as I have been in Denmark and Norway, these wonderful, tidy, prosperous countries, I feel intensely American because I miss the sharp-elbowed, hurly-burly innovation, build-a-better-mousetrap feel of my own country. That said, I agree with everything Ed Luce just said, that... There is an anxiety in the West right now, and I, I define the West broadly, by which I mean countries governed by representative democracies, that the system is grinding to a halt, that you know the great engine of American prosperity has been the opportunity to, to be one generation safely in the middle class and that your children will live better than you do, and upward mobility... But it is now the case that if I know your zip code, I can tell you what the quality of your children's upward mobility will be because I know so well the quality of the schools they'll be going to. What I find interesting about this, Rosa, is that there is a paradox. Because I love paradoxes. One, yeah, I love paradoxes. <laughs> tell me more. Yes. Well, on the one hand, you have Ed, Ed discounting the rise of the right as the thesis for the year and saying it's really the rise of crazy people. And on the other hand, you have Ed and Corey giving us a rational explanation for why we have the rise of crazy candidates. Could you unravel this for me? Because we are we are in what is known as the age of craziness, David. But I think both Corey and and Ed have, have essentially said the same thing. It's 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 we're at one of those great dislocation moments of of history. You know, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, this will be this will be remembered similarly. You know that where where whatever tenuous bargain, economic bargain, social bargain, political bargain, people thought there was. You know, of here's what you do, here's what you can expect. Um, there's some stability in terms of people's expectations of what what their polit political leaders are going to do, what the economy is going to do, what the schools are going to do, and then suddenly that that rug gets pulled out from under everybody and anything goes and people get scared and people get freaked out and all kinds of crazy start happening. And I think we've seen that at other moments in, in history where you, you get these sort of massive dislocations like the Industrial Revolution, you know, the end of feudalism. And, and we're in another one. And Ed is right. I think, I think that anybody who says, oh, I know how this is going to work out is also either very arrogant or very crazy. 
uh, because we, we don't know how it's going to work out. The rules don't make sense anymore. We don't know what to do. I sure, I sure don't know what to do. I find it scary, too. I mean, my kids live in a zip code that, that bodes well for them. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually think this is going to be a terrifying world for our children to live in because I, I don't know what... I don't know what any parent, even in those lucky zip codes, can say to their child about, hey, here's what you can take for granted in the future. And that, and that I think, gives rise to both a sort of nationalist, xenophobic sentiments in many, many countries, which we're seeing kind of a rise of nationalist political parties across the board, uh, because the, the natural human instinct is to sort of shut down, huddle with the people who look like you and try to tell everybody else to go away and, and be in denial when you get these big changes. I'm just going to huddle with people in my zip code. Well, that's, we're going to arm ourselves that's what against people, people in the next zip code. Hmm, that's a little disturbing, although it <laughs> sounds plausible. Um, uh, but when I think of these big traumatic changes that you've talked about, so the uh, the Renaissance and the shift away from feudalism oh, towards plague. nation states. Let's throw in the Black Plague. Well, that's before then. The collapse of Byzantium. Oh, Jesus. So, you know, when I, th- when I think of the Renaissance and the, and the rise of nation states and the fall of feudalism, I think of the Thirty Years' War. Yes, When I think of happen. the Industrial Revolution and I think of the uprisings of the 1840s, 1848, and so forth, and then subsequent to that, the advent of industrial warfare, which mm-hmm, led to mm-hmm. the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, and also, let's throw in communism as a really stupid idea that came out of the whole thing, uh, maybe based on some reasonable thoughts, by the way, but but became a kind of crazy idea, and so on. And so, Ed, the question is, is this period of turmoil and transition, which will turn out okay in the long run because progress works, one of those really, really dangerous periods? Yes, I think I think it's. I mean, I share Ro- Rosa's foreboding about my daughter's future. I mean, we're we're in. A, I don't think she mentioned your daughter. Uh, good, no. I mean, I, I'm worried about your daughter. <laughs> we're in a we're in a similar zip code, though. I, I I share that sort of deep visceral worry that might be overstated, and in retrospect, we might laugh at ourselves, and we might see this as a wobbly moment that uh, you know where we 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 overreacted, but. I, I, I'm not sure that we will. I mean, I don't think, you know, Trump becoming the nominee of the grand old party of Abraham Lincoln and polling, you know, above 40 percent at least in the polls is is just a blip. I, I, I think this is a, a, a profound alarm, a, a, a loud um, alarm signal about the health of our societies. Um, I think um, there is a sense, particularly in America, but more latterly across most of uh, of the West, that meritocracy is our system and that that system no longer works and that people precisely in our zip codes actually scratch each other's backs, give our daughters and sons, you know, extra tuition, get them free internships. People in my zip code just give free BMWs to their neighbors. Free, just, free BMWs, you know, yeah. Spread it around. Um, and that this this sense that we tell people living, you know, in, in um, less less fortunate areas of, of our societies that, oh, look, in the palm of your hand, you've got an iPhone, you've got the Library of Congress, you know, you've got everything, is not much of a... It sounds pretty patronising to say that, you know, when they can't afford to go to college or feel they can't afford or, to go or to college. Or the college they go to isn't a decent right. education. The I was on a debate, by the way, a couple of weeks ago at the Comedy Cellar, which is, you know, the kind of place that I tend to Frequent. do debates. Is this with your daughter? No, no, no. no. <laughs> 
my one of my daughters is a, does improv comedy, but no, this was a, a debate on the future of America, and it was me and somebody from the National Review versus George Packer of the so New Yorker. So this is now a subject of comedy. This is the only place we talked about the future of America is in a It was absolutely club. sold out, absolutely sold out. But the, this woman from the National Review who's sitting with me, who may have been a lovely person but was profoundly misguided on a number of issues, was like, oh, well, you know, uh, America's a great country because if you work really hard, you can get a job. And it was like, um, well, no, no, there's more people out of the workforce right now than at any time in American history. Um, and it's like 92, 94 million people who are out of the workforce. We don't know how we're going to get them back in the workforce. But this isn't just happening here. In China, there were 400 million people who thought we're going to be the next ones in. And those jobs aren't being created. And this is true in all of these places around the world. Corey, you are in Scandinavia. By any measure, the countries of Scandinavia are doing something right. They're at the top of the list in terms of quality of life. They're at the top of the list in terms of uh, social uh, safety nets. But they're also on the top of the list in terms of fiscal responsibility. So maybe there's a ray of hope that maybe you have gone from California to Scandinavia in search of a system that's kind of a socialist ideal. Is that why you're there? <laughs> well, I sort of feel like California already thinks of itself that way. Um, one of the two things I would say about the Scandinavian model, one is, yes, it works. It's magnificent. These are such well-governed countries. But they don't deal with the amount of turbulence or the degree of difficulties. Just take Denmark, for example, a country that has the highest level of public satisfaction of anywhere in the world, right? Danes like their lives as much as anyone. And they have one of the most restrictive immigration policies. Um, so they are choosing to sustain the things they like about their society, right? And that's not a bad thing, but it's very different than American choices would be about that. If you take the great state of California, right, which, which is kind of a socialist paradise in a lot of people's minds, we also have the highest rate of poverty in the United States. So economic opportunity is a big part of the solution to the problem, but you also have to govern in diversity. Right? We have an enormously diverse population, a lot of new immigrants, a lot of non-English speakers who need to have a conveyor belt into the labor force. And as you pointed out, David, traditionally going to work is how we integrate people into American society. And that is failing to have the upward momentum that it once did. And we need to fix that. This new generation of workers in the United States are going to come from a demographic group that people are starting to call the plurals because they come from mixed ethnic backgrounds and they speak multiple languages. And we currently have a system that makes people who have that kind of background feel alienated. And we have a candidate running for president right now who's trying to alienate those people. But the flip side of this is that that's kind of a superpower the ability to speak multiple languages coming from diverse backgrounds in a global world creates 
uh, the ability to reach out to multiple places, and it creates cross-pollination, and that creates innovation. And the way that you solve problems like this in history, and we've gone through this before multiple times in history, is innovation. And you have to create not groups of like-minded people. You actually have to create diverse groups of people and give them the chance to interact. With that in mind... Rosa, can you think of any place in this world where people are lurching around for an answer that's getting it more right than wrong? No, I can't really. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that there are any fantastic examples. And I think Corey's right that the Scandinavian experiment rests on a much greater. They're, they're small countries, and they're much more homo- homogeneous than than the United States. I think, you know, in some ways, I think we do get it right. In other ways, obviously, we get it badly wrong. But I don't think there's anybody out there who's doing it better, who's doing it exactly right. And I, I also do think that David, in the, you know, in the long run, in which we are all dead, as as you suggested, the the. The trends are good, you know, and it's kind of fascinating that we now have a generation in this country who are not only growing up speaking speaking more than one language, but because of technology, because of low costs of travel, because of Skype, FaceTime, email, everything else, are able to maintain ties with family members and friendship networks in other countries in a way that was not possible for previous generations of immigrants. You know, the immigrants in the early 19th century couldn't do that. You came to the United States from Russia or wherever it was, Italy, and you were probably never seeing your family again. And and that that takes away a big source of assimilationist pressure, obviously, which in some ways threatens threatens whatever we think America is because people don't have to adapt to whatever America is, be it be it good or be it bad. You know, so to whatever th- idea we think we have of some shared sense of political community, that's potentially really undermined. I think that's part of what fuels the nationalist anxieties we see right now. But it's also, as you suggest, it is in the, in the long run a tremendous source of strength and innovation and, and a way to get beyond some of that narrow nationalism that has obviously plagued Western countries for, for many, many, many years. So I, you know, I, I am not uh, an optimist. I, if, as I think I may have said in a previous episode of the podcast. Well, you're sitting in a studio wearing your pajamas. I'm sitting here wearing my you're pajamas. clearly if clinically I, depressed. If I weren't so lazy, I would be stockpiling canned goods and buying an old missile silo because I am, I am you know, fairly, fairly uh, convinced that the odds of cataclysm are greater than the odds of reaching socialist paradise or any other form of paradise in the next 20 years or so. I am, in fact, too lazy to do anything other than have an occasional working flashlight in the house. So my survivalist instincts are always at war with my slothfulness. Um, but but no, I, I... I've got a cupboard full of tin sardines. There, there you not, go. And as the Holocaust great political motivated. philosopher Montesqu- Montesquieu said, there's a direct correlation between people who eat canned fish and tinned fish and their level of good governance. So I think you're on the right track. Montesquieu I'm sure you said that. Yeah, you definitely oh, yeah, said something yeah. very much Mont- like I think that. It was, it was either Montesquieu was, or Monty Hall. Right. Actually. One of those guys. The former but anyway, host of let's make a deal. Yeah, <laughs> but right. I mean, I, I don't, I think, David, you are quite right to remind us that other massive periods of historical disruption, while they may have ended well in the long term, you know, we think of, we say, oh, you know, 30 years war, but we got the peace of Westphalia and that was awesome. That was so much better than what went before. Well, the 30 years war really sucked while it was happening, right? So I, I don't particularly take it for granted. While I do think, will we humans muddle through most likely? Yeah, I think we will muddle through. Will we humans eventually claw our way to some somewhat better system, economic system, political system, international system that we have right now? Yeah, probably. Do I think it will be a an enjoyable process? 
Uh, no, I think it could be a horrible, disruptive, agonizing, violent process in many parts of the world. Well, as as I often will say in speeches, you know, my warp childhood included running to my father one day as as a young guy after having watched a, a video on nuclear winter and saying, this is terrible, 100 million people will die. And he was like, well, what's wrong with that? He was a scientist and a little bit <laughs> provocative. And, and, uh, and I said, well, 100 million people will die. What would be the point of going on living? And he said, well, during the 14th century, 100 million people died during the Black Plague, and the result was the Renaissance, which I didn't find comforting then. And now listening to you, I don't find that comforting. <laughs> um, you although, although he made a good point, which is, you know, in the long run, we muddle through. Ed, we have like four minutes left. Yeah, top that. I'd like to go to each of you, and I'd like to get us one more try. Name one place in the world where you think we're getting it, this 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 change more right, or whether maybe something to learn from this. But I think both. I'd like to pick up what both Corey and, and Rosa. They both made excellent points. Not something that I said. Um, no, well, you you. I um, mean, that's implicit. Um, um, the although you know there are a couple of things on which I violently disagree, but um, we can we can we can we'll raise those later. Yeah, you guys can take that outside. Um, so so why is it that the country in the West inverted commas that has had the longest period of stagnation, namely Japan? is politically the calmest. We don't have a Trump-san, you know, running running Japan and haven't had the threat of... It's because that. they eat raw fish, I'm telling it's you. It's partly that. It's partly because they it's have... It's not exactly true. They have the no immigration, but they have been going through what we've been going through for 10, 15 years. They've been going through for almost 30 years now. And the system is still broadly stable. And I think the reason is they have controlled uh, their population. Um, they've prevented immigration. And as a result... Uh, as both uh, Corey and Rosa have, have eloquently stated, their um, ability to innovate is declining. They're stagnating economically, but they're more stable politically. And I think that might be true of, of, of the Denmarks of this world too. And it's fact quite interesting that two of the most uh, volatile countries in Europe now, politically, the Netherlands and Britain, in terms of the rise of the right and the left, um, are, are also two of the most diverse and economically innovative. It's a lower bar economic innovation in Europe, but but Britain and and, and uh, uh, the Netherlands are more dynamic because they're more diverse. So you know, I don't think we have a a way out of this morass, but I do think there is a trade-off here that we're understanding a little bit better in this time of stress between how you manage diversity and the the innovative benefits you get from being diverse. So Corey. Rosa is fearful and has but a single can of tuna to her name. Ed is seeing some glimmers of hope out there. Do you have any other places outside of where you are right now where you might see a glimmer of hope? I actually agree with Ed that the United States does get this right. Moreover, I would cite you as the as the apostle of this, David, in your FP article about why we should all vote for Hillary Clinton that was both so poignant and so persuasive. You pointed out that what this period in time might very well look like to historians is an America resurgent. We elect a black president. We elect a female president. It, like, the genius of the American system is that our politics are tied so tightly to uh, responsiveness to voters' worries that politicians have a huge incentive to actually turn keys in the lock until they figure out a problem. And the American political 
uh, establishment or political party politician who figures out how to persuade Americans that to look forward with optimism in a way that I think Franklin Roosevelt did, that Bill Clinton did, that many other American presidents have done well in this time of enormous transition, that we actually do have the keys to getting this right. They're good governance, they're responsive politics, they are innovation, they're immigration. We are actually getting this right. It's just really hard to see in the immediate moment. Right. And I think that we focus a lot on the negative, but we don't see the seedlings of change. Around the time of the Black Plague, which also happened to be the time of the Little Ice Age and a bunch of wars across Europe, you also had the birth of the middle class. You had technologies like water mills spreading around where Which people— Which was unfortunately absolutely no consolation of the people dying of the Black Plague. Well, but, the, but well, you know— Well, well but, I mean, but, but if we are going to take a historical perspective, um, <laughs> uh, it was significant. And furthermore, it actually was a consolation to the people who are members of that middle class and who are no longer serfs. And during the period of the Industrial Revolution, people who once worked in the fields in worse conditions were working in factories in lousy but better conditions. I think the moral of the story, listeners, is that history has its winners and its losers. And if you're one of the losers, it kind of sucks. And if you're one of the winners, you're pretty happy. And and moreover, that and it helps if you're one of the losers, as those were uh, victims of the Black Death, not to give them the vote. Well, right, and buy more canned tuna is yes. the other moral well, of the story. Well, those are, those are conclusions that one could come to cynically. I actually <laughs> think that we're not looking hard enough because I do think there are answers in Scandinavia, not to everything because those societies are not uh, sufficiently diverse. Uh, but we shouldn't reject their approaches simply because of that. We should see which of them we can apply. I think that's true in many places. One of the most innovative places I know, and this is a controversial statement, is Dubai, which is 86 percent expat and which is actually a truly global city operating on new terms that in terms of economic development, focus on technology, focus on the role of women, focus on things like infrastructure, being a hub in a world of hubs in telecom and in transportation, is actually getting it right. Are they getting it wrong in some areas, guest workers and others? Yes, they are. Is it an open society, fully free yet? No, they're not. Is it a 44-year-old country or 40-odd-year-old country? Uh, and were we when we were 40-odd years old as a country, a perfect country? No. So I think there's a lot of things we could say, but it's not just that. There's cities growing up in China that are solving some of these problems. There's cities across America whether it's Akron, Ohio, or whether it's um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, that are actually finding the seeds of change. And I actually think that a lot of what we need to look for is happening at the city level, not at the federal level, and that you know we could throw up our hands. We could all go down in the bunker with Rosa. We could sit there and fight over the last can of sardines um, and, and give up on this period. Or because we don't want it to be that, we could identify these areas of change and, and, and try to embrace those things. So, you know, I, I don't think you can have a rigorous analysis of history without ending up being an optimist. Because if you study history, in the end, we make progress. Uh, what do you mean we? <laughs> no, I, I mean trouble here. <laughs> civilization. I mean human beings hmm. who live 
twice as long as they used to live, who are better educated, healthier, and have a higher standard of living uh, than they have had in the past. In any event, I don't mean to monologize here at the end of this podcast, but those of you who have listened to it in the past know that's a lie. I actually do like monologizing <laughs> at the end of the podcast. Is that a word? That does not it's monologizing. It is. Uh, like I, it. I do not, however, want to uh, suggest that the contributions of Ed Luce, Rosa Brooks, Corey Shockey have been anything less than stellar. They'll be back soon. Me too. Join us. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.